what? It's Zachary Chichi. I'm not popular. And I'm sitting here alone in my room. I'm drinking a lemon sour. About to put on some Jacent Sumo Wrestler. And, uh, yeah, I've been thinking a lot about gay clubs recently. <laughs> Probably because if you've been following I'm So Popular Season 2 in the chronological order, you'll know that I moved to Tokyo back in August, and since then I haven't really had a stable drag gig at all. <laughs> so I was really excited because in February I finally had my big Tokyo debut scheduled, Chichino debut, but due to the fake COVID variant that just started, that got canceled, along with the other gig I had scheduled back at my home club in Nagoya to uh, wish my beloved Miku Divine a happy birthday. So, no drag gigs for Chichi in February, um, but the journey continues, and gay clubs remain fastened to the brain, because on Saturday, I had the opportunity to go to my very first circuit party, which was the Shangri-La party at Ageha here in Tokyo. And if you're a gay person in Japan, the odds that you've heard of the Ageha parties are pretty high, because they ran for, I think, over 20 years, and during its tenure, it became the biggest gay party in Asia. People used to come from Korea and China and all over Asia to come to this little party in this warehouse on the outskirts of Tokyo. Honestly, it's no surprise to me that this event became as infamous and successful as it did, because there's no way of accurately describing just how maximalist the layout of this party is. This warehouse on the outskirts of Tokyo is filled with these enormous concert hall-level rooms that are completely evacuated, except for masses and hordes of homosexual men. There are several different venues at this event and several different parties going on within it. And all of them are staged in these gigantic spaces that are filled with perhaps a stage or a runway, and then nothing but men. When you walk into the biggest hall, and you look to your right, and then you look down the stairs into the arena, you don't perceive individual human beings. What you see is this undulating knot of flesh, because there are so many people that it's impossible to imagine them as individual members, and your brain just reduces them to water droplets in this sea of barely clothed, if clothed at all, flesh. And when you realize that said skin all belongs to homosexual men, it is a rush of sublimity that I have just never been exposed to before. Maybe this will come as, <laughs> like, a little bit of a surprise to I'm So Popular listeners, but I'm actually pretty inexperienced when it comes to gay clubs. I've probably only ever been to, like, at most 10 or 12. The reason being that um, <laughs> there's just not that many gay clubs in uh, Oregon, and there certainly weren't that many in my college town. And when I moved to Japan... I basically only was able to go to the clubs that I was doing gigs at, and then once or twice when I was on vacation in Osaka or Tokyo. So I really haven't been to that many, and the idea of the gay club still kind of mostly exists in my imagination. And the imaginary gay club that I've kind of invented for myself and my perception of things is both the fantasy I sustained of them when I was in college and dreaming of escaping the endless straight bars I was going to with my friends, but also kind of the filmic and literary impression I had from stuff like Cruising and Andrew Holleran's Dancer in the Dark, which is, of course, non-existent now, those both being imaginations of the 70s and 80s. 
But all the same, when I finally walked into that enormous chamber of Akeha and I saw all of those gay men reduced to an endless sea of people, I kind of thought that maybe in some way it still kind of exists. And I would be really happy if I was right about that. Because when I was reading stuff like Dancer in the Dark and even Larry Kramer's Faggots, I've always felt that despite the kind of horror and abjection that both authors portray in describing these wells of gay people thrust up against each other, sublimity is always the other side of the coin to abjection. And I've always wanted to be able to throw myself into that pit of sexuality somehow. I know that circuit parties and gay pride events and gay clubs in general and all of it has kind of been reduced to slush in the contemporary moment. And I know that there's definitely a fashionability to being opposed to spending all of your time like doing poppers and mushing up against the bodies of men you don't know. I know that there's definitely that kind of attitude, but I actually do think that there is something artistic to be said about the experience of a gay club. I'm So Popular is innately about finding some piece of art or some curated experience, literally anything beyond yourself, and then allowing yourself to feel moved by it, like, kando sarita, like, to be touched so significantly by something that it moves your heart and changes your perspective and gives you a new lease and access to find love for existence. So, I'm not popular, and I don't care if it's uncool or unfashionable to talk about gay clubs in this way, because when I looked into that utter hell pit of shirtless Asian men and their well-trained bodies smashing into each other and rubbing their sweaty backs all over my face, I felt something. I felt something while I was looking at my boyfriend and holding him in my arms and some stupid, retarded club music was playing, and I felt something. And I don't care if it's not cool to feel that, because I felt it. (laughs) So, no matter how gauche or passe or does I, it seems, to reflect artfully and seriously about the nature of a fucking gay club... I'm not popular, and this is my goddamn show, so I'm going to do it. (laughs) And to get to the bottom of this sensation, we have to go back almost exactly 100 years. We have to go back an entire century. James Joyce published Ulysses in serialized portions for the American Journal of Literal Review from 1918 to 1920, but it wasn't published in its entirety until the 2nd of February in 1922, which also happened to be James Joyce's 40th birthday and almost exactly 100 years ago. I was first exposed to James Joyce as an undergraduate when I had to read sections of Ulysses for my history of the English novel class. (laughs) But I ended up reading his full text of Ulysses and his short story collection, Dubliners, on a vacation to see last week's guest, Leo, down in Chico, California, on my spring break of, I think, my junior year of college. Before that, I had always been very fond of Henry Miller, who was one of the first artists that revealed kind of the flesh beneath the straps of the world when I read the Rosie Crucifixion and specifically Sexus. But James Joyce always maintained a very serious fascination to me 
because of his extraordinary power to realize the emotional element of the human life in settings that seemed otherwise impossible to see that kind of thing in. I can still recall very clearly the first time I read his short story, Eveline, sitting in a cafe with, uh, without Leo, waiting for him to finish his job at a movie theater, and as the protagonist of that story decides not to go with her uh, fiancé or husband, I can't recall, to America, and she stands watching the ship leave, I felt really moved that in modernism, this kind of feeling and this depth of the emotional experience could be realized in such simple yet extremely complicated language. I mean, it's kind of hard to describe the way that Joyce writes, which is in a way that seems to state everything very clearly, but yet draws on so much literary history and his own ability as a writer that it becomes really fabulously ornate when you're actually going through the process of reading it. And the process of reading Ulysses in particular is something that I think people try to justify as boring but impactful and important. And I think that's exactly the wrong way of going about it. I think that the fact that Ulysses is so monumentally exhausting and monotonous and so packed with detail into every small interaction of the human heart and taking every miniature moment of life and exhausting it into endless literary reference, I think that that kind of monotony and boredom is precisely why the book continues to remain one of the succeeding impulses and influences on me, both as like a writer, but also like as a drag queen and a podcaster. That quality that I continue to carry with me is that of what I think defines all great literature. Because writing and the form of the novel is the only artistic expression that I believe can really give you a sense of the interiority of the mind. Music and film and video games and everything else, painting, photo photography, whatever, none of it can really give you as intimate of an experience with one person's individual mind and their processing of reality as the novel can. And the shape of Ulysses in particular is that it works in overtime to create the exact formulations of the human consciousness in such minute detail that it really feels when you overwork yourself with this book that you have completely evaporated your own being into that of the narrators. So naturally, my aspirations of all of my art, my drag and my podcast and my writing is the same effect as Ulysses, which is to create such a convincing weaponization of the human mind that when you experience it and contact it yourself, you have no choice but to let it become a part of your own personal philosophy. So, whether anyone knows it or not, I've always been personally emulating James Joyce and his practice in Ulysses with basically everything I do. Because if I was ever to be capable of creating such a powerful and convincing representation of my own being that no matter whether you want to or not, you end up feeling me as a part of your subconscious through the way I've expressed myself, then... I mean, what's better than that? <laughs> and maybe it sounds like kind of like fascist or terrifying that I want to insist myself so seriously, but all the same, I think that that's a really beautiful way of creating an imprint on the human mind and being able to create an image of myself so convincing that whatever you do from that moment on and whatever you experience with art you're always going to be somewhat influenced by the way James Joyce or myself have been able to push you in some certain kind of direction. That Joyce was able to accomplish this from merely describing the single day in the life of one person and those around him is really a miraculous accomplishment that, I mean, 
Is that not what podcasting is for? Is to just merely uh, display myself and my own interests and fetishes and perversions and um, hopefully aim to convince you of something that way, right? But it really is truly something unparalleled that he was able to do with this novel. And no matter how kind of uh, loose and untethered from the world my description of the book is, it really truly is the effect of the novel, is that celestial kind of emptiness and extremity that I just wish that I could one day evoke myself. It probably makes no sense that I'm talking about this right now, but I promise it will if you make it through the whole episode. But the moment that this all became most real for me and I realized that the time I had spent burrowing through this fucking book, the, the moment I realized that all of that was really worth something and had ultimately affected my point of view was, of course, in the last segment of the novel when we enter the perspective of Molly Bloom, who lays down beside her husband and prepares to go to sleep. This section of the novel is definitely most infamous for having very limited punctuation. Uh, there are stretches of uh, this section that go on for almost 20 pages without a period. Um, I've never been fond of the phrase stream of consciousness, and especially as it's applied to modernism with writers like Virginia Woolf and Henry Miller and, of course, Joyce himself. But, I mean, this is truly the most literal actualization of that concept. As Molly Bloom, like, drifts to sleep and has these minor interruptions of sounds outside and, like, the need to piss, like, what happens is that she stretches and compacts her entire existence into her own perception of the 24 hours that have just unfolded behind her. And Joyce is able to turn that perception into not only just a kind of depiction of what she had just experienced, but also this black hole of all existence that seems to suck up life and the way that our feeble minds are able to comprehend all of it and spit it back out as this minor scene of this woman just merely going to bed. But what's really happening is we have an opportunity to get so close to Molly Bloom's state of mind that we can witness her silently reenacting her entire existence over and over again in these truly unsettling and sometimes disturbing visions of her primordial sexual desire and her innate female jealousy and her rage and her love and seeing her go through this thought process as she prepares to go to sleep is really one of the most profound literary movements I have ever had the pleasure of going through. This particular section of the book won it enormous censorship and I can completely understand why. Because not only is it extraordinarily graphic, but it's revealing of something really uncomfortable and deeply human. There is one portion in, in particular where she is thinking, oh, patience above is pouring out of me like the sea as she's um, reflecting on her sexuality and her relations with another character, uh, Blaze Boyles. And that sentence alone is truly beautiful. Oh, patience above is pouring out of me like the sea. But it's continued on, and she goes, Anyhow, he didn't make me pregnant. As big as he is, I don't want him to ruin the clean sheets. And it's this HBO girl's Lena Dunham truly disturbing revelation of what really unfolds in the human brain as we have to think about things as important as the continuation of our species, along with the desire that we have for other people and our trite concerns for the cleanliness of our linens. <laughs> of, of course, this is something that you want to smother and erase from the truth of how things are. You want to shove this under the bed because how embarrassing is it that we as human beings and our thought process go from something as immaculate and incredible and sublime as the creation of more life and have to conflate it with the embarrassing size of someone's member and potentially getting our 
period during sex and leaving blood all over the sheets. Joyce writes something else here that I've, uh, I remember underlining in my paperback copy of Ulysses I Left in America that has uh, always stuck with me. And he writes, The lethargy of nescient matter, the apathy of the stars. We are totally alone here. This is something that Evangelion says over and over again, the hedgehog's dilemma. No matter how close you want to get to other people, it will only harm you more. The interiority and the thought process that you experience as a person in this world go only so far as you. You can never externalize that perfectly. You can never truly create yourself in the mind of another person, and the existence that you carry around is merely a sequence of thoughts that have piled up upon each other as time goes on, and you're merely looked upon by the gods and cosmos above as merely blank, lethargic matter. And maybe lots of people would take that as a black pill or something. They'd be like, oh, well, I don't exist. I'm merely a bunch of synapses firing, referencing stored information in my body. That's the only me that exists. But I don't think that Joyce insists upon that at all, because the end of the novel is completely framed around the word yes, in the same way that Battle Royale is framed around the word hashire, run. Joyce decides that the answer to that cosmic indifference and the own meaninglessness and bizarre circumstances that have led to your subjectivity, the answer to that is yes. It's you rolling around in a field, embracing the plants around you as you decide to accept marriage or or anything else and screaming yes to it. And I've always found that to be really beautiful and something truly astounding he was able to accomplish with this book. But what is almost infinitely more astounding beyond that, what is really the finest accomplishment of Ulysses and James Joyce and all the modernists in the entirety of all their careers, is is not even the answer to yes. It's something greater than that. It's that with their art, they were able to bring you close to something that you will never truly be able to experience. They were able to bring you close to the consciousness of themselves. They were able to literalize and artistically communicate the process of thinking and experiencing in a way that no art had ever done before and has rarely been able to do since then. James Joyce was capable of in Ulysses, and particularly the Smalley Bloom sequence, he was capable of revealing the impossible elegance of interiority, something that we all experience and are never able to truly make exterior. And Ulysses, I think, is one of the closest moments in human culture that we've ever gotten to truly being able to turn the finite and horrifying details of the way that we think about things and the way that our minds unravel constantly towards disgusting sex and abject desire, he was able to truly actualize that. He was able to make that into something physical. And that's why I've been bringing this up the whole time and something I want you to keep thinking about as we uh, go through this walk together is that an artist was capable of externalizing our most pulverizing and disturbing interior desires and the functions of our existence into a beautiful and transcendent piece of art.
Sensual World is a 1989 album by Kate Bush, a pop singer I've actually been dying to talk about in the podcast basically since I started, but there was a really fabulous episode about her on The Perfume Nationalist by my mother, Jack, and um, I've never felt like there was, uh, you know, more I needed to add about Kate Bush and her legacy than what I heard on that episode. Um, and yet, looking down the face of the gay club and what I intend with this episode, I feel I have no choice. This record and Ulysses actually, in fact, share a very close relationship because Bush intended to use a lot of the prose from the Molly Bloom sequence of Ulysses in this record for the title track, The Sensual World. But the grandson of James Joyce refused to give her the rights, and so she wasn't able to complete her full vision for what she intended with that um, inspiration until much later in her career when she was finally able to secure that stupid copyright for the song. But beyond the direct reference to Joyce and what she wanted to do with that track, I feel that Joyce and Kate Bush on this record actually share a lot of similarities that yield the precise kind of discourse I'm trying to get at so I can explain my feelings about gay clubs. I know I mentioned earlier that I felt as if the novel is the only practical means of truly replicating the human consciousness and bringing an audience as close to that as possible. But I feel as if recently the novel is beginning to lose its traction as a means of really accessing that. And maybe not even recently. I I could probably argue that since the 80s, really one of the few authors who's ever been capable of even broaching that because of the way that capitalism and internet and technology has completely fried our reality. The only author who's ever even gotten close to what Joyce was doing, I would say, is maybe Bright Easton Ellis and David Foster Wallace with, like, Infinite Jest. I feel like most other authors, as we all plunge deeper into the electric grid, just stray further and further away from being able to truly invite people into the human brain cell as an organism. However... That's not to say I think the access is completely lost, and of course, (laughs) as a writer myself, which is embarrassing to say, but nonetheless, I mean, I do pray that I can also take people into uh, that closeness, but I I think that the deeper we go into that grid, I think that the access to it is actually appearing in new and more disturbing forms the further we go. This has been a main theme of my show in season two when I talk about absolute internet garbage like James Charles and Tati Westbrook's feud, or when I talk about horrendous and completely salacious bastardizations of multiple cultures and stuff like Private Lessons 2. Like, I absolutely think that we can still find a way to that closeness It's just arriving in a more punishing and unnerving and frightening state than maybe it could in the elegance of a novel. And I think both intentionally and unintentionally, one of the clearest points of access to that interiority has been through popular music. Most of the time, I think it is kind of incidental. Like, I think some of the great artists, like the the Joycean recording musicians of our time are like Lady Gaga and like Madonna and um, shockingly Kim Petrus with coconuts and like Nicki Minaj. I think that they have been able to, by some stroke of fate and chance, summon a lot of our sexual thinking and a lot of our cultural neuroses into their popular music, whether they know it or not. But in 1989, Someone who absolutely knew what they were doing and and truly intended to in every sense was, of course, Kate Bush. The more I revisit her career and the more I think about what she's done, it's really, I keep saying incredible, but I just don't have the language to describe how um, astonished and amazed I am that there are artists like that that continue to exist in this world. But I mean, from the very beginning of her career to the end of it, basically, or what she's doing now, there are so few artists that have such a clear scope of what they want to do 
with their entire oeuvre as a as a project. And Kate Bush is absolutely one of those with her really beautiful, like virginal music with Wuthering Heights as her career progresses. And um, when it finally leads to the sensual world, it feels like something really major has broken through in terms of her storytelling. Most people will probably know her for stuff from like Hounds of Love, which has a very clear narrative arc to it with a A side full of uh, jubilant, empowering pop music and a B side that's a uh, kind of a breakdown of it all. But I think where she really begins to create a truly compelling sense of narration is on this record. Actually, kind of unlike Ulysses, this record is much closer to Dubliners because every record that she had done previously to The Sensual World were compact narratives that had a full beginning, middle, and end, as it were. But this is kind of the first time that she has created a sort of record of short fiction. Each song is from a different perspective, and she writes these very intimate and established worlds that conclude by the end of the song before she moves on to another perspective in in the next track. And I think that the major key to really beginning to understand what her focus is and what her intentions are with this record can begin with merely the title, The Sensual World. It seems to me that Kate Bush is attempting at unveiling this same squirming universe that Henry Miller and James Joyce have always been trying to reveal from beneath the straps of society, as it were, in favor of something that only exists within the emotional realm of the human heart. That the record cover photo is a direct allusion to a photo shoot of Mishima Yukio is, of course, the nail in the coffin here, because Mishima was devoted in his entire career to not only exposing that universe and a proximity to the human mind, but synchronizing that with his entire physical existence as well, and his death and his bodybuilding and his... uh, status as a socialite was another essential part of that. So in every respect here, Kate Bush seems to be kind of framing the record as a way of getting at that universe of the mind that Mishima and James Joyce have been able to create in their literary career. And here, Kate Bush aims to do it through pop music. (laughs) And pop music, which is kind of the garbage compactor of all culture, Seems kind of like the perfect setting for her to put that white rose in her mouth and look longingly up at the camera like Mishima once did. Because Mishima also has always like understood that his legacy was going to be kind of received in an almost ironic sense with the idea of uh, Japonism and uh, Japan as it's perceived by other countries. So his uh, death by roses and his cult of the samurai and his rampant nationalism was all the same kind of performance that a pop star puts on when they begin writing broad music about culture and their own feelings. And so when the context of the record is uh, finally given way to what she actually writes and what kind of music she's making here, she sings on the eponymous track, which is the song she originally intended to be Uh, filled with passages from Ulysses, she writes, Stepping out of the page into the sensual world, stepping out to where the water and the earth caress, and the down of a peach says yes. This song that is also filled with bagpipes and this uh, kind of dewy-eyed longing as it's looking at the hillside and church bells, it feels like a real passage to me of some sort, especially since it's the opening song of the record. Stepping off of the page, it seems that Kate Bush is kind of using these broadly appealing and exciting, enormous like riffs of popular music to move out from the literarized and uh, written world and attempting through her music, to access some greater space of the human heart and imagination. 
This is exactly what Joyce was doing with his Molly Bloom passage as well. He was using vulgar language that the masses were all quite familiar with. I, I believe the word fucking and cum both appears in that sequence. And she's using the same kind of accessible entrance ways that everyone knows to actually push people out of the idea of art and through her own expression, try to create a proximity to some kind of replica of the human heart and mind. And so she uses this entranceway that she's established to then lead us into a sequence of songs and basically, in effect, different iterations of the Molly Bloom sequence of Ulysses. She, she basically does that for a plethora of different voices in different moments of emotional climax. The Fog does this by emulating her childhood memories of uh, learning to swim from her father and uh, pulls on kind of this uh, simple and accessible memory to milk the extraordinary distance that one feels between their parents and the rest of the world around them and everyone surrounding you as you're floating distantly in the water, incapable of touching or, or grasping land or something solid to hold on to. It's this kind of private memory that you would maybe recall as you're drifting off to sleep in the same way Molly Bloom would when suddenly you're faced with some familiar scent or, or memory coming up to you and all you can remember is a brief five seconds of reaching out for your father's arm in the water as you're learning to swim. And of course, it, it's something private and you know, intimate to you, but at the same time, it's emblematic of the way you react and interact with everybody you come across in your day-to-day life. And even when the kind of uh, emotional connections she's drawing on are something further away from an actual lived memory and are something closer to speculative fiction or fantasy, which happens quite a few times on this album, She still does it in a way that feels as if she's revealing something deeply unspoken and awkward and private about the human consciousness on a really grand scale. I think this is uh, best attested to on a sequence of two tracks on this record. The first of which is Heads Were Dancing, which I plan to lip sync next month at one of my gigs. And it's a sort of fable about a young woman who is taken aback by a very charming and charismatic young man at a dance who plays a coin game with her and convinces her to be swept away in his arms, uh, just to find out a few days later when she witnesses a newspaper that, in fact, it's Adolf Hitler. I honestly don't think that there is any other song that's, like, as chichi-core <laughs> as uh, Heads Were Dancing, because the absolute gall of Kate Bush to stage the extraordinary little feelings of betrayal and loss and uncertainty in the self and one's own desires by framing it around accidentally being swept away and falling in love with Hitler is just the most perfect summation of emotion I've ever heard. And of course there is something kind of ridiculous and theatrical going on here, and I feel that Instead of leaning into that and making it a joke, she presents it with a stone-cold face of unshakable seriousness. Because the appearance of Adolf Hitler as a character here is what really creates the extreme drama that exists within the truly emotional human being. I feel like when you fall in love with somebody and you don't really know who they are just to find out in horror exactly what kind of person you've let into your bed and into your life, like, the only adequate comparison to that that you could ever possibly make is to the greatest monster of all history, Hitler. James Joyce also seems to understand that when people are greeted with emotion, our consciousness turns the everyday and mundane events of our lives into something much more preposterous and fabulous like I feel like the entire Molly Bloom sequence is just packed with that same kind of sensation of these 
really kind of boring things that happen in your day-to-day life being exploded into something cosmic and enormous. So when Kate Bush is making the Hitler comparison here, when she's really literally casting Hitler as the one lost evil love of your life, it feels like she is bringing you closer to the truth of the human consciousness than most other artists are willing to ever approach. And that she follows it up immediately with something like a deeper understanding is just another breathtaking moment of her artistic prowess, as it were. That's another phrase I'm learning as I record podcasts by myself that I love. As it were. Incredible. Camp. Um, what was I saying? Um, a deeper understanding. This is one of the one of the moments that Kate Bush is able to get so close to the human proximity that she ultimately ends up making a prediction about culture that became so uncannily true that it feels like you've stumbled across a Dead Sea Scroll when you think about the fact that this song came out in like 1989. She describes somebody alone in their room and deeply immersed in solitude that she buys a little black box computer program and uh, falls so deeply in love with this computer program that she begins neglecting all of her bodily needs and has to be rescued by her family. The obvious comparison here is that my private little black box computer program is Twitter, where uh, I can uh, fall so deeply in love with my own image by getting in fights with C-list internet personalities that um, I begin also neglecting my bodily needs. But... Beyond that, what I think Kate Bush is doing here, once again, is unveiling a closeness to the way we think and the way we feel that is so strikingly true and so defamiliarized with this kind of fantasy setting that it ultimately ends up creating something very much actual. Because the core of this moment that she is presenting in her kind of Book of Dubliners short fiction, the emotional climax here is somebody so pulverized by their own aloneness and their own solitude and their own lack of love and feeling that they thrust themselves in harm's way the second they feel any kind of reciprocated emotion. The absurdity and the kind of uh, theatricality of this science fiction song that she's made only kind of becomes more true with the deeply serious way that she presents it and the kind of soaring choral voice of the computer talking to her doesn't feel like pathetic or embarrassing it feels really empathetic and something that could have come out of your own your own consciousness This song is the depiction of a feeling done with so much honesty and in all of the painful, awkward details and refusing to be coy or ironic about it. All of this together creates the impression of a feeling so subjective that it ultimately kind of melts you into its own point of view. Every track on this album comes from a subterranean universe that none of us typically have access to at all. She writes on love and anger. Take away the love and the anger and a little piece of hope holding us together. Looking for a moment that'll never happen. Living in the gap between past and future. She says, well, if it's so deep, you don't think that you can speak about it. Through her total commitment to these warts and all, strange and uncomfortable feelings that are brought to life with her incredible sense of lyrical styling and this uh, electronic and orchestra-fused kind of uh, liminal music, all of it together creates a summoning of the mind. It's like she's lifting out the way that we think and see the world in this disgusting and bizarre and and strange way full of ridiculous obsessions with computers and love affairs with Hitler, as well as just reaching out for your father's arm when you're lost in a sea. Like, she seems to be lifting out the way that we perceive the world and actualizing it with her music. 
So when I first went through Kate Bush's entire discography and began really picking apart her music, I was greeted with the exact same feeling I had when I was reading the Molly Bloom sequence of Ulysses. I felt like Kate Bush had lifted out the mind from the impossible, immaterial, subterranean universe that is lurking just beyond us and always fairly out of reach. And she was grasping it and thrusting it into reality through her art. The sensual world, the realm of the senses, and this cosmos of feelings that we're all immersed in and yet can never actualize, the only time that you can ever really get close to touching that universe is when someone is able to truly create subjectivity through the praxis of making a song (laughs) or writing a book. And um, I think and I, I hope that the podcast is equally capable of doing, you know, the same thing. And as it turns out, it's not just exact literal art in which one can begin to find the sensual world. albums of my entire life is by a musician actually heavily inspired by Kate Bush so this uh, lineage continues to just spiral into darker places but when I was in college I fell deeply in love with Utada Hikaru. The reason I was so infatuated with her was for the same reasons that I also came to love Kate Bush and James Joyce which is that in really private and brutally honest ways and in settings you'd never imagine like in the front seat of a car or in a hotel lobby looking at yourself in a mirror or in any number of places she was able to create a emotional universe that I felt truly resonated with the way I think and the way I see the world as well the album that came to stick to me most out of almost anything she did um I've talked about her record Hatsukoi on the podcast before, but the record that I think I hold most closely to myself from her is her English-language record, Exodus. This record is really notorious for being kind of awkward and bizarre, and uh, even though Utari Hikaru is Japanese by birth, she grew up a lot in New York City, so... She's always been an English speaker, and even her Japanese lyrics are kind of, like, bizarre and off-putting as well. But there is an especially kind of brutalist and experimental way that she writes lyrics on this album that it's very uncomfortable the first time you hear it and very challenging to kind of swallow. And so when I was kind of toiling over this album when I first started listening to her discography in order... Uh, a lot of my initial approach to to the album was trying to figure out if she was being like serious or not, or if I should even look at the album in a serious way. And one of the moments that I knew that, yes, like this is a very mature and bold piece of art that deserves every ounce of unironic criticism and uh, analysis as her greatest albums in Japanese, the, the moment I realized that this is one of those pieces of work was when I was listening to the song called The Workout. (laughs) The Workout. (laughs) And um, The Workout is set in a club. Three girls, four guys, and it's a list of very... How should I put this? 
She lists these encounters with men that are so bracing and otherworldly. When you first hear them, they're kind of difficult to imagine as something that could ever happen. It's these gigantic, tall Texan men watching her as she, as she writes, uh, shows how you get down in the Far East. And born-again Christians who she has conversations with as they describe rediscovering Jesus as if they found the tomb of Tutankhamun for the first time. And among this is a chorus of stuttering reversed violins and this skittering impossible to put your finger on beat that she of course produced herself as she does almost all of her music. And hearing that uncertain and completely collapsing production as she's meeting these impossible people, and then among it all, describing these very strange orders of the body as her spine is snapping and replacing back into different forms. You feel as if you're listening to someone who's never encountered a a human body or even a human person describing the conversations that would happen in a club. At first, it was very difficult for me to understand why she would put some of the most experimental and self-serious, gloomy, dark production on this album on a song merely describing the people move, merely describing the way people move their bodies and talk to other people on a dance floor, basically. The instinct to evoke something so radical and defamiliarized when she's merely talking about getting down at the club with a Texan guy with a cute accent when the music's playing too loud for her to be heard, the instinct to use that kind of feeling to sum up this entire setting she's established, it was very alien to me, at least at first. But now when I'm reflecting on um, my Saturday night, (laughs) on my Saturday night at Ageha, it all kind of begins to click together for me. One of the memories I'm going to surely take away from my night at Ageha was um, I finally got to go to an Utara Naito. I finally got to go to Utara Night, which is a section of the Ageha party. And ever since I've fallen in love with Utara, I've known about these events where they have drag queens lip-syncing her performances and tons of gay people gathering to hear this uh this woman this woman's music at a club and i always had a fantasy about being able to go and it wasn't until this past saturday that i finally went out in the frigid cold onto uh one of the balconies of this warehouse party and with maybe three or two or three hundred other gay men standing around a neon lit blue pool i heard music from exodus getting played in front of all of these people. And this was so much catharsis for me that I was immediately possessed by the phantom of wig boot leg and twirl mama house down leg. Like, so much of, like, my gay sensibilities and my obsession with this diva, basically, were all actualized in a total Wordsworthian sublime trigger. Like, I got absolutely carried away. The videos of me screaming the lyrics and flailing my arms around are both, like, autistic and horrifying. But it's, like, the spirit of boot and twirl. It came to me. I really hadn't actually been feeling the club that much. Um, I was, of course, taken away by the sheer sight of all of those men pressed together in that room. And the sheer scope and maximalist layout of the venue, it, it of course impressed me, but I was texting Nick from Tokyo the entire night being like, I don't get it. What's the fuss about? Like, what, what's, what's the point? What's the big deal? And then there I was in my turtleneck with a little cross necklace on, and Utara Hikaru filled my entire being with the impossible and ephemeral sensation of wig the house down leg boots. I really felt like my spirit had been opened up at that point. I felt like 
until I had seen all those people emerging with me in the same moment, all of us being collected together, all hearing this, uh, you know, honestly, in America, very obscure artist who no one cares about. And then seeing that made physical around me was like an actual opening of a door for me to the experience of the gay club. And along with that opening is also where we finally come into contact with all of the nonsense I've been blathering about tonight. This is where, after a hundred years, James Joyce, and after 40 years, Kate Bush too, make their entrance onto the stage. At one point later in the night, me and my boyfriend went into the arena, the pit of all those shirtless men, and I looked around, and what I actually ended up seeing was something infinitely more sublime and moving than my initial summation of just a sheer scope of endless bodies pressed together. What James Joyce and Kate Bush succeeded at so brilliantly with their two maybe most important pieces of art in their careers, what they succeeded at doing was capturing the essence of the internal being and externalizing it into something that reshapes the world around it. It's not just disgust and horror and abjection and catharsis and beauty that you get when Joyce is able to so perfectly create Molly Bloom's subconscious in the world of the text. And when Kate Bush is externalizing the most private and intimate sensations of feeling that you've been in love with Hitler or that you're so locked in your isolationism that you'll do anything to get out or that you can't find your father's arm in the water. It's not just the relief of having finally made those feelings and that frame of thinking real in the form of art. It's actually, in both the case of Joyce and Kate Bush and I think Utara Hikaru on Exodus, the case is that they have achieved actual transcendence by making the impossible functions of the sensual world somehow real in the shape of art, they have accomplished actual transcendence. And what I think I witnessed when I was looking into the pit of all those men around me was something identical to what I just described when I was reading James Joyce and listening to Kate Bush and Utara. The gay circuit party is less so a hedonistic mess of flesh and disgusting urges of people throwing themselves at each other. But I actually think that what this amounts to is a gesture towards the transcendental. In the gay spirit, fundamentally, we're trained to constantly gaze at the male form, trapped inside of t-shirts and like work button-ups or whatever, and constantly scan for instances of beauty. Mishima constantly writes about tracing the footsteps of his lovers and watching the way that their clothes adjust on their body. And these desires are so integral to the way that I look around the world that when you suddenly look into a pit of men who are revealing all of their forms in a graceless but completely earnest demonstration and gesture towards what they are constantly privately witnessing. Like, what else is that but the transcendental? Especially in Japan, where I think gay people are still actually repressed by the culture around them, and not having it egged on into a disgusting neoliberal shape that we see in the West, I think it's even more beautiful and moving to see people try to recreate their inner realities with nothing but total abandon and this enormous communal thrust towards making the private realms that we're all trapped in and making the sensuality and the sense of eros and the bizarre feeling world of our misfired primordial desires and defeating, absolutely defeating the repressive order around us and breaking through it to try and restage the sensual world in the actual physical realm is simply transcendental. The fact that this is all set to the most 
corny, stupid music you've ever heard makes it only more true to the spirit of leg boots, twirl, and wig. Like, the worse the music is, and the cornier the go-go boys dancing on stage are, the less talented the drag queens and the more misfires going on around this whole event, the more impressed I am by this complete shattering of the veil of reality. The gay circuit party is perhaps the most modernist piece of art that we could ever ask for in 2022. And now it's over. This Ageha party was, um, of course, my first ever circuit party. I mean, if we're really going to call it that. But it was also the last Ageha party that's uh, ever going to happen. During um, one of the bigger outbreaks of COVID in Japan, they ended up having to sell the warehouse and Ageha as a venue is going to close. This was the, the last of the parties. And to think that for, you know, over 20 years, people were coming from all across Asia to slam themselves into this room and communally try to create something out of the disgusting inner turmoil that we have. As a gay person, I know very deeply that I'm like extremely perverse and um, suffering from a really misshapen view of the world. And I think, you know, most homosexuals share in that as well. And to think that for two decades, there were so many people coming from so many different places to all try to externalize these warped frames of thinking and to create the mind in reality. I mean, it's kind of heartbreaking. And it's especially worse when I think about the fact that these kind of places could be going on anywhere. But because we've accepted such a disgusting form for the gay man in the West, and the homosexual has been degraded to the worst kind of punching bag you could ever ask for, no one even tries to create these kind of sublime experiences anymore. So much of the mission of neoliberalism, to use that word, is to lock away the sensual world. It is to further obscure the muddy heart of the universe that we all share in. We all contribute these repulsive feelings with one another and these difficult-to-swallow objections. We're always constantly creating and half-engaged in that invisible universe, but the political system and the way people want you to behave, they want nothing more than to keep that world as distant and inaccessible from you as possible. This is sustained not just in the defeat of nasty homosexual culture, but in stuff as simple as mask mandates and physical layers of plastic splitting people apart so that it becomes even more difficult and more oblique to try and pierce the layer and engage people into the sensual universe. It's always there, but some greater force out there is desperately fighting to keep us out of it and lock us into stale cages of plastic corporeal reality. So, standing in the pit of those gay men, <laughs> and ignoring how does I and unstylish it is to be at a circuit party and, you know, watch men in jockstraps shake their ass around. Ignoring all of that, actually, no, not ignoring it, but consciously looking straight at it, I feel, you know, a little refreshed and empowered that even for this one night in January of 2022, there were still people actively striving, whether they knew it or not, to bring forth interiority and make it real in reality. Just like James Joyce and Kate Bush did with their art. Just like Utara Hikaru did. No matter how stupid it seems, I feel like any gesture towards that is uh, one worth thinking seriously about. I'm, of course, reaching the final stretch of the second season of my show here. 
And while I was on kind of the last legs of the first season of I'm So Popular, I made uh, an episode by myself called Throw Away Your Books that was um, one of the first moments where I felt really lucidly clear about the mission of my show. And um, as, you know, my journey towards fame perils forward, you know, sitting here and thinking about something as tacky as a circuit party and thinking about how that really kicked a transcendental and sublime nerve in me, I feel like I'm getting closer to the mission that kind of started there. And I think it's going to take a new shape and begin to manifest itself in the truest way possible. And maybe this show too can eventually lift the mind out of the murky sensual sea and allow you into it.